and welcome to the special poetry edition of the Fremantle Press podcast in 2022. Today we are recording in Walialup in Wajaknunga Budja, and I would like to acknowledge our first storytellers along with Noongar elders past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Bron Bateman and I'm the author of Of Memory and Furniture and Blue Wren, both of which are published by Fremantle Press. My guest is the author of Second Fleet Baby, Nadia Rook. Nadia is a non-Indigenous historian and poet born in Nam, Melbourne and currently living in Bourlou, Perth. She has a PhD in history from La Trobe University and lectures in history and Indigenous studies at the University of Western Australia. Nadia has published widely on linguistic and medical histories of Southeast Australia and is passionate about creative translations of history. Nadia's collection, Boots, was released by UWA Publishing early in 2020, weeks before she became a pandemic mother. Second Fleet Baby is her second poetry collection. Nadia Rook, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Bron. It's lovely to be here with you. Now, I would like to start by giving our listeners a taste of your work. And we've chosen Settlers Swim in Wadawarang Water, Wajuk Water. Would you mind reading that for us now? I'd love to. Settlers Swim in Wadawarang Water, Wajuk Water. Here we celebrate that we are, toward the end of our brief history, still visitors. The caravan wheels are chopped for the summer. My grandfather wakes at sunrise to sit on the pier and watch the tides rise and fall, rod in hand, bucket at feet. He skins his catch in the caravan annex. There's nowhere to hide from the smell. Nana crumbs and fries the fillet, golden fruit of the sea, oil running into carefully folded paper towel, crinkle-cut potato fries in the pan. We swim until our bathers are scratchy with sand. When the sun dips, we shower in the cubicle with sisters and cousins and laugh at the clumps of green and brown plants stuck to our bellies. The fresh, hot water is bliss. Not because it's fresh and hot, but because it's a stingless imitation of the salt river meets ocean water we've reluctantly left for the day. Years later, 350,000 kilometres west, on another country, my mother and my outlaws and my love and I play in the Indian Ocean. After, we lie on grass to air dry, then drive inland to a new home and laugh about the piles of sand tucked into bathers. We dump them onto the bathroom floor, messy, unplanned sandcastles. Our laughter showers us with childhood, the place where land and sea do not need to be the same thing, do not need to be gentle, do not need to submit to each other in order to exist in the same word. A disease is spreading, unevenly, across the world, and there's something bigger than Australia about swimming together in this ocean. Highway to England, back road to Montevideo. We struggle to push nostalgia down. It's so buoyant now, always bobbing on the mind's surface, the caravan, the pier, the seaweed clinging to belly. 
the nostalgia floats until the next wave arrives. Beach visits me here, over and again, rocks me, fetus, to sleep. Thank you, Nadia, for reading that beautiful poem. I was struck when I read it about the importance of country and recognising country, which it seems to be a recurring motif in this collection. Also, you mentioned the menace of the encroaching virus and pandemic and how family and travelling together acts as bulwarks against incipient danger. The thread of family and familial relations runs through this collection like water through a landscape, I think. Anadia, tell us about the significance of this poem from your perspective. Uh, For me, I guess on one level, this poem is simply precious memories of swimming with, with family in two bodies of water separated by geography and time in Bowen Heads, on Wadarung Country, home of Sea Change, some people may be familiar with that place, and Fremantle, Wajak Water, near where we are. The water is kind of this aqueous cradle in this poem and the collection, uh, something very comforting. And the memories were even more precious to me during the pandemic when I was separated from my family for long lengths of time. And there was this this time when both my, my outlaws and my mother were in Perth and we all swam together just seemed amazing. For me, memory and nostalgia is kind of the third place, a kind of resting place beyond those two geographic places in this in this poem. You know, nostalgia is important, I think, as as a as a place of comfort in memory. So there's that, but at the same time, the title recognises, well, we're swimming in Indigenous waters in, you know, an occupied country. What does that mean? And in her book, The White Possessive, the great Gunpul scholar Aileen Morton Robinson has a chapter called Bodies That Matter on the Beach. And after you read that book, you never see lifesavers the same way Again, you won't necessarily think of yourself as a, a white body on the beach. What's your potential to be to kind of symbolise and enact possession in your presence? And, you know, the beach is actually a, a densely political site in the Australian consciousness. Memories are precious to me. But yet what does it mean to revisit these memories in the space of Indigenous sovereignty. I really understand and appreciate that idea of history and possession and the alliance that that has with memory. As a poet, you engage with history, I presume, because you are an historian. Can the study of and writing about academic history be enhanced or improved by storytelling techniques? Historians really remain very bound to our records and very, very careful when it comes to using um, literary devices as well as speculation or imagination. Um, And this tendency to empiricism has really been reinforced, unfortunately, by the history wars and this kind of race to the bottom of the page, this race to the footnote as the ultimate source of authority. Um, And Tom Griffiths writes about this, that before the history wars, there was a momentum to value imagination as a resource. 
So historians like Greg Denning and Inda Clendenning were arguing for the importance of imagination to really know and connect with the past. So I think poetry and story can really um, not only enhance our study of the past, but can counter some of the hyper-attention to, to the records, which we know are often very misleading and full of lies anyway. <laughs> you know, my supervisor, who was an historian, the late Tracy Benavanuama, taught me and all her students that using a metaphor when we write history can be a really important, powerful thing. So in my PhD, I used the grid as a metaphor, but it was the real grid, the street grid of Melbourne, but it was also a structuring grid that ordered people, ordered bodies in space. It could sort of be a metaphor for a structure, but it's also a real structure. Using metaphors, using literary devices gives us a truer articulation of history. And that's something I've only really been able to articulate recently and why I kind of moved away from the journal article from those conventional forms of history to just give myself the freedom to say, no, poetry is my way. Images matter. Metaphors matter. Similes, enjambments, all those poetic devices, they actually make history truer. And it's actually taken me a long time to give myself permission to say such things out loud. So thanks for that question. You're welcome. That was such an amazing answer. And in a sense, you're embedding yourself in in the narrative of the historic event. And I think it's really interesting that you're both an academic and a poet I'd like to know a little bit more about how these multiple strands of your career work in parallel. Um, Because it's always been important to me to find ways to share my research outside of the academy. You know, it just isn't interesting to me um, if only fellow academics are reading my work. Soon after I finished my PhD, I thought, oh, you know, it's hard to get a job in academia if nothing else, it would be really nice to have an exhibition with my work and just email this the City of Melbourne Library and ended up having a public exhibition there, um, also developing a walking tour. So through that public facingness, I began to think about story more and stripping some of the scholarly stuff away and just letting the stories shine through. And then from there, I've moved in into poetry, which is another different medium to me to understand the past, to connect with the past. Um, Yeah, also these different modes of walking towards exhibition poetry, I find a lot of pleasure in in those modalities Um, and I think they have sustained me to keep going with, with being an historian and kind of with one foot always trying to keep one foot in the academy and one foot firmly out of it as well. Speaking of a foot in the academy and one foot in the story, the collection looks at your ancestors' experience on the Second Fleet. Can you give the listeners some historical context about the Second Fleet and who your ancestor was? Yeah, the first section um, is a lot about my ancestor, Susanna Mortimer and her daughter, Susanna Screech. Susanna Mortimer was 
uh, charged and convicted of stealing a sheep. Um, she lived in England. Um, she was sentenced to transportation and travelled on the Lady Juliana in 1789 from Portsmouth to Aoraland in what's now called Sydney. So the Lady Juliana was a really interesting ship. It was debatably part of the second fleet. It actually came after the first fleet but before the second fleet um, and it was an all-female transport ship. So... It was very lucky for my ancestor that she was on that ship because it had a much lower mortality rate than most ships in the Second Fleet, which was also known as the Death Fleet. The government had just transferred responsibility for those ships to a private slave trading company, actually, Camden, Calvert and King. So these are these ships going around which are assisting settler colonisation, which have been just used for the slave trade, and here's my ancestor in one of these ships. And then I found out that, yeah, she gave birth to her daughter on the way to Aora land. So it was really these small details. She stole a sheep. She gave birth at sea. I mean, my imagination just took off from there. I just really wanted to zoom in um, on those moments, like what does that mean as a woman in the 18th century to steal a sheep. You know, I'm imagining her chasing, you know, hustling sheep in the middle of the night. And what would it have been like to give birth at sea on a ship? And so I began to research a bit around those questions to build up my my imagination around that history and to connect with this side of my maternal history that I hadn't before Fascinating. In Second Fleet Baby, your own experience of motherhood and modern technology is written alongside your ancestors' experience of motherhood and the technology of her day. What do you think you're saying about the differences and similarities between those experiences? This is one of those connections that for me has probably been there in retrospect more than when I was writing the collection. As white women, we have in common that part of our desirability um, or our function in the colony is to reproduce the settler population. And in her time, that was very explicit. This is a fledging colony. We need more bodies on the ground to justify occupation. But I still felt that sense when I became pregnant and the way that I was embraced, you know, especially as I was teaching certain histories of war, actually, and thinking about whose bodies get protected. You know, what am I doing? I'm also increasing a settler population on, on Indigenous land. What does that mean to to be involved in that reproduction. So there's that side of it. But then we both have sort of those forms of privilege, but we both have had our own struggles as well. I mean, she gave birth at sea. Possibly there was a tent pitched in the corner of a deck. She probably had a midwife with her, some basic technologies, perhaps a stool, perhaps some chamomile tea or... Um, some herbs to assist with her healing. Um, So there's that um, 
simple technologies, but still technologies available to her that may have not been available to women on other ships. And for me, I had the technology of in vitro fertilization, you know, over 200 years later. So obviously they're radically different technologies, but um, there's still a lot of privilege in, in becoming a mother in, sen- in that sense, but also some struggle. <laughs> you know, it's not easy to give birth on a ship. It is not easy to go through IVF. So, yeah, that sense of struggle as well as that sense of privilege that I hope runs through the stories. Definitely does. The collection looks at the IVF experience, Nadia, and there's something almost transformative about your description of IVF. Alongside what I see as a gothic fascination with the scientific distancing of it, why was it important to you to give voice to the multiple expressions of that experience? Going through that very clinical process, I often felt like I was inside my body in ways I hadn't been before, like because you're injecting yourself, you're giving blood samples, your your insides are <laughs> rendered visible all the time. And I also felt like I was sort of floating outside my body <laughs> watching the scene of this and that medical staff examine me. And so I did have this sort of fascination with how it was this really intimate process, in, in some ways quite invasive as well, like literally invasive in terms of egg extraction, for instance. And at the same time, really like scientific, rational, distanced. When I was going through IVF, I was looking for representations of it that would provide me just some perspective on it, just some way to think about it (laughs) that gave me perhaps strength or perhaps a way to just make sense of my own experience. And at the time, I couldn't find, I couldn't find any. Um, But, you know, if Toni Morrison says you should write the story that you want to read, so I just began writing my own poems about IVF and um, pushing through what felt like a little bit of a dark and lonely time in some ways, although I'm really grateful that I did, I did have people supporting me, but I needed a narrative. I need a poetic narrative as well. I need, it was, you know, I was making new life. It's a beautiful thing. But what did that mean? Having a lot of needles, you know, waking up at six in the morning to inject yourself. Like, so I'm really glad then to share these poems. Um, later, I became aware of the work of poets such as Ada Limon and Aileen Chong who write about infertility treatments in really beautiful ways. I wish I'd had read that work earlier. It would have provided a comfort to me. So I don't know what these poems will mean, but I really hope that anyone who needs just to be held a little bit more through that experience may find, you know, some sort of sense of connection, at least in the poems. Yeah. I think they definitely will. The IVF experience is one of the many ways you grapple with the awkwardness of narrating the past and present from a position of privilege. How do you keep race and gender in mind in a meaningful and intentional way when writing history, either as an academic or as a poet? This is something where I'm really grateful for 
my academic training in in things like critical race theory, whiteness theory, um, post-colonial studies, intersectionality, all these big words that actually um, have enabled me to try to find ways to think about my subject's position as white, as a woman, as a settler. I mean, all these critical theories teach me not to take that for granted, just to keep holding that to account, not to naturalise it. Because once you naturalise those things, you're letting your power become natural. You're not holding it to account anymore. So it can be cringy though, right? It's perhaps not interesting just to talk about being white all the time. There's always that risk that you just end up reinforcing that or it's just tokenistic and cringy. But I really think that if privilege is a flip side of oppression, and I think everyone knows that oppression is important to think about, is definitely worthy of literary attention and care, then so too should privilege be worthy of taking seriously and interrogating. I just try to observe in the way I'm treated, the, the way my body is received in the world, in the forms of invitations I get to take up space, to be possessive, to tell stories that aren't my own. I pay attention to that and I think doing that in a sort of practice way, hopefully it comes through in the poetry, although perhaps sometimes implicitly, I think. But some feminist scholars talk about looking at the way power materialises in certain bodies over time, over generations. And I think if you think of that as a long process, then you can realise how important story is, not just giving a label white, but telling a story is. It's through the story that we see the process whereby privilege is made and maybe privilege is used in certain ways. I'd like to move on. As you know, Fremantle Press works extensively with new and emerging writers and poets, so I wanted to include a section for them. Your poetry appears in various journals and anthologies, including Cordite, Peril Magazine, Mascara Literary Review, Westerly, The Enchanting Versus Literary Review, and What We Carry, Poetry on Childbearing from Recent Work Press. How did these experiences help shape or guide your career? I guess when you're submitting a a poem to a journal, whether or not it's published, you begin to think about that poem as part of a bigger conversation, as part of a bigger landscape of language you can begin to make connections too between your work and the themes of the journal or the editors or wider conversations that are going on. That was really important to me to read journals and to think about not just like individual poems being published, but what are the conversations that these editors are facilitating? How does my poetry speak to these conversations? Submitting to different journals was an interesting exercise too in thinking about my politics. So, you know, some journals, they really like explicitly political poetry and other journals seem to want to perhaps not foreground politics. It can be a good exercise, I think, to think about what it would mean to put forward a poem that might have a more coded message. 
for instance, versus putting something up front. All of that is valuable. Um, Quite early on, I had a poem published in Peril magazine, which is a forum for Asian Australian arts and culture. And that was really interesting in terms of thinking about relationality. How did I identify? I was asked to identify my background. The poem was about you know, sort of sitting in Little Burke Street thinking about Chinese-Australian history and how I imagined that in that place and how I related to that. So that um, made me think about forms of ethics and self-identification that came through publishing. And another important experience that's really relevant for Second Fleet Baby was being published in What We Carry, which I think you have a poem in as well, Bron. It's just a superb collection. It really captures the diversity of experiences of childbearing as well as infertility. And having a poem in there about IVF was really affirming. Having that poem in that collection helped me overcome some kinds of shame which I needn't have had, but which I had, I think, about struggling with infertility, about not conceiving so-called naturally. Yeah, it can just be really affirming and also gives you relationship to other people published in that place, which is such a wonderful thing. Yeah. It's been such a privilege to bear witness to the matriarchal and feminist historical motifs of your work and the parallels of your contemporary experience with that of your maternal forebear. Congratulations, too, on the publication of Second Fleet Baby. You've had some amazing reviews to date. Lisa Gordon says it's a rare combination of judgment and compassion. Elfie Shiyasaki said it's full of tender yet piercing stories of nation-building and childbearing. Listeners, you can buy Nadia Rook's poetry collection, Second Fleet Baby, in all good bookstores and online at freemantlepress.com.au. Thanks so much, Nadia. Thanks, Bron. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I'm Bron Bateman, and I look forward to catching up with you next time as we explore the wonderful world of West Australian poets and their poetry.